yeah, I wasn't raised with any kind of spirituality or earth honoring traditions of any sort, but I've been searching that out over the last 25 years, really, and have been focused on that a good deal. And, and what your ideal way of inhabiting that is might look different from another person's. We each have our own unique destiny. Somebody might have a destiny that has them very involved with issues of First Nations, justice, sovereignty, healing, all that. And somebody else's um, destiny might not draw them in that direction, but they still can learn how to be respectful. My name is Dr. Daniel Ford. My website is ancestralmedicine.org. These are further reflections. to episode 15 of Further Reflections. I'm your host, Mark A. This episode is being released on June the 10th, 2018, and it's the first episode in June. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. The website for the podcast is furtherreflections.net. Today's episode will feature an interview with Dr. Daniel Four. Daniel first came to my attention by a friend of mine who's done some of his uh, trainings down in uh, North Carolina in uh, the United States. And Daniel's not from Ottawa, Canada, which is where I base this podcast, and which pretty much all my guests have some connection to the city. I like to record interviews with people I know personally and that I uh, have met in the local community. But uh, Daniel has actually not been to Ottawa before. He's coming in August to give a workshop on uh, his work uh, associated with connecting with the ancestors. And if you go to the website ancestralmedicine.org, you can learn more about Daniel. And uh, just reading a little bit from that website, Daniel writes, I'm a teacher and practitioner of practical animism who specializes in ancestral and family healing and in helping folks learn to relate well with the rest of the natural world. My focus on the ancestors sources from my training as a doctor of psychology and licensed marriage and family therapist from the guidance of my teachers in earth-honoring traditions. For example, European pagan past, Native American ways, Mongolian shamanism, and West African Ifa Orisa tradition, and from two decades of implementing the teachings of ancestor reverence in my own life. Since 2005, I've guided hundreds of ancestor trainings, rituals, and talks throughout the United States and helped many others to reconnect with their family ancestors through personal sessions. 
I'm the author of Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing, which was published in 2017. And uh, there's more on his website, but uh, that gives you the gist of uh, what he focuses on these days. He's also uh, was a Sufi Muslim, and I bring that up because he's. I heard on another podcast he did, I think, that he spent time in Morocco. And I'd been to Morocco in 2010. I lived there for about six weeks. I intended to stay even longer, but uh, circumstances uh, led me to leave Morocco. But uh, he spent time in the city of Fez, and I visited Fez for about three days in late 2010, but spent most of my time in Casablanca. But I do have fond memories of Morocco, so I asked him about that. He talks about his uh, work with the Yoruba-speaking people of Nigeria and the ancestor work he does there. He talks a bit about uh, First Nations or Native American uh, influence on his uh, work. And he gives some overview on the book and his practice in general with the ancestors. I ask him a little bit about uh, the movies because if you've heard this podcast, uh, probably I classify myself as a cinephile. And I've done at least one podcast strictly on the movies. That was episode five of this podcast. So in his book, he makes reference to a lot of popular culture, including many movies. So we touch on that a little bit. And uh, he also promotes his workshop, which is coming in August of 2018 to Ottawa. And if you want to find more about that workshop, if you want to find more about that workshop, it seems like there there is a Facebook event page and things like that, which you can probably find just by looking around. But the best way is to go to the website, yeah, ancestralmedicine.org, and then slash lineage-healing, and you'll see his... Uh, links to register for his workshop in Ottawa. He's also got workshops in, uh, I guess, uh, December is the next one after that, in Phoenix, Arizona, if anyone's listening and maybe would be interested in that one. He also does uh, trains people to do uh, become a practitioner of uh, ancestral work. So you can learn more about all those things at the website. Before we fade you into Daniel, I'm going to play a brief, uh, probably few minutes uh, clip of myself with a story about an African uh, woman that I heard about and her relation to the ancestors. It's not a very uh, happy story, in my opinion. It's kind of sad. It gives you a kind of insight into what uh, sort of... Um, maybe a more mainstream or I don't know if you want to use that word but you'll hear the story about how a woman was forced to give up her ancestral uh, traditions her culture uh, very much revered the ancestors and she was forced to give that up it's not someone I know personally it's just something I heard about back in 2011 someone talking about uh, and this took place in Africa so I thought it would be relevant to maybe some of the work that Daniel also does in Africa, although this is in a different part of Africa. But uh, still, and uh, one more thing before we get going with Daniel, I just want to recommend a podcast I've been listening to recently. The podcast is the podcast is called Tangentially Speaking, and I heard about it through a group for another podcast, and someone 
link to this page, and there's over 300 episodes. It's not something I'd heard about before, although you would think maybe it has a lot of overlap with some of the podcasts I do listen to, but uh, it's hosted by Chris Ryan, and he has a website, chrisryanphd.com, and that's the best way to find this podcast. Just go to that website, click on podcast, and tangentially speaking, he has over 300 episodes now, and I haven't been able to go back and listen to too many because they're quite long. Some of them are over three hours, which is significantly longer than this podcast here. But they're very interesting and they're very professional. And um, Chris, you can also learn about, about himself and his books and things like that. But uh, there's a few that I listened to the more. I probably went back to the first dozen or so most recent episodes and... I listened to a few. My ones I would recommend are with Mika Mika Springer. Uh, Mika spent uh, time in Africa, actually, which is probably also a connection to uh, what Daniel talks about in this interview, in a way. She spent a year just traveling around Africa from, I think she started in the West and ended in the East, and she was this was back maybe around the year 2000 or something like that, or maybe even a little bit before that. And she ended up in Kenya and started a relationship with, a, I believe, someone from the Samburu tribe there. I believe they're Maasai people. And uh, then it's sort of about her relationship to that person. Um, she has a book. I can't remember the title right now. But I remember the subject matter. It's quite interesting. There's also a guy he interviewed, John Porter, who's kind of uh, quite a character who talks a lot about rattlesnakes. He's a rattlesnake expert. I wouldn't have thought that that'd be something it's a bit off what I would normally listen to, but it's fascinating. He's sort of living a very frugal life and very, he's more kind of like a maybe a hippie ish type, and it's quite an interesting conversation. And the uh, third was with uh, Ryan Freisinger, I believe is his name, and he's sort of looked into kind of human behavior and our relationship to animals and things like that and um, he's got a lot of interesting things to say too so that's tangentially speaking and I haven't recorded anything for the next episode of the podcast so I don't really want to say who the guest will be but I have something but I have an interview scheduled soon so there should be a new interview in two weeks but uh, now just sit back and relax and we'll listen to uh, Daniel Four of Ancestral Medicine for about uh, half an hour. And we'll catch you next time.
This is Mark A. of Further Reflections, and I just want to share a little story that, uh, something that I heard in 2011. So for about six months in 2011, I did an internship at a farm, um, learning all about, uh, quite a big farm, 350 acres, I believe, and we learned all about uh, livestock, we did a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Program, and we did uh, haying and things like that. And uh, yeah, all, it was a, it was an interesting time, and I won't say the name of the farm here, but uh, you can probably you know if you look hard enough, you might be able to find that out somewhere. But uh, it's not that important. Uh, the story is probably more important. Um, so basically, uh, every I think it's around July, this farm since probably the early 1900s I think they've hosted a convention for a religious group called the Friends and the people that own this farm are members of that group and it's a little bit I think it's maybe a little bit like the Quakers although I'm not sure but uh, they like they don't have a central church they meet in people's houses and they're all over uh, North America as far as I know and they, I think hundreds of people come to this convention. It's over the course of probably three or four days, I think. And uh, during that time, uh, yeah, they host these people coming. And people come from all over. And um, I was involved with sort of helping out with that a little bit when I was there. And I got to meet quite a, a lot of interesting and different kind of people. And uh, attend some of their... I don't know if you want to call their gatherings or they had little uh, sermons there and I would attend and it was kind of interesting I still don't quite know all about what what goes on in that group of uh, religious group but I did show some initiative some interest in it and um, we would kind of gather together communally with them during that time uh, people would come to set up even probably a week or so before the convention and we would gather with these people uh, communally and have uh, meals and stuff and uh, during this convention basically there was a kind of uh, a men's group I guess uh, like a kind of lecture uh, one evening and it was hosted by a, a man I guess the friends send people as missionaries um, all over the world I guess they do have uh, a lot of people that want to do this and uh, I heard stories a little bit not too detailed but people there had been posted across North America and uh, other continents as well and there was a kind of a men's group in this kind of a men's dormitory that we gathered there and there was a, a lecture by a guy and if I remember the details correctly this guy had spent a number of years posted to Madagascar and um, it was quite eye-opening what he said. He basically said that uh, they would go, be posted to local communities where maybe Christians have not made inroads. And they would try to befriend them, but at some point they would want them to become a member of this society. And to do so, they would have to give up in many cases their beliefs and in this case there was a woman who 
uh, they she I don't know what her story was too much, but she became a member of the society almost, or she wanted to be a member, and she was more of an animist, and she honored the ancestors, and it was a big part of I guess ancestor reverence is a big part of the tradition in her society there. And uh, she was really torn because they told her, if you really want to join, you have to, um, like Christianity is not compatible with this uh, animism. And so you have to give up not only your belief systems and your ancestors, but you have to give up your family as well if they will not convert. And I believe she did give up, if I remember correctly, she did it was kind of they were touting as a kind of success story in some way that she did give up her family to join this group and i think they said that even if they just got a few people to convert over many years that's a success to them so you can draw your own conclusions from this story i just thought i'd share it uh, maybe it's relevant for the interview you'll hear with daniel but uh, I'm not going to say too much about what I think, only that it's quite an eye-opening story, I would say. So in a minute, we'll hear the interview with Daniel Four. Take care. Um, sure. So we're joined on further reflections by Daniel Four. Uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Daniel. Thank you. It's good to be here, Mark. So... I think in a minute I'll ask you to just uh, give the brief overview of who you are and your background, but uh, let's first, because uh, most of the people living, listening to this podcast are in the Ottawa, Canada area, let's uh, situate yourself a bit. You're in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, right? So I am. Tell us, yeah, I tell us about Asheville, North Carolina and what brought you there and a little bit of sense of place maybe. Sure. Well, I was, I was born and raised in the United States. My ancestry is earlier English, Irish, German, settler, colonizer ancestry. And uh, so I grew up in the state of Ohio and then spent time living in California and live now with my wife and daughter in Western North Carolina, Blue Ridge Mountains, and moved here because of Sarah's family for the most part, but also, uh, you know, it's beautiful and we feel the resonance with the land here in terms of my own background to just say a few words about that by way of getting into the conversation. Um, I have a PhD in psychology, I'm a licensed therapist, but mostly I'm a ritualist and I've trained with different uh, spiritual systems, some indigenous, some, some not, uh, some of my own blood ancestry, some not. And I'm an initiate and practitioner of West African Ifa, Orisha tradition, which is based out of Yoruba speaking Nigeria. I've developed over the years a specialization in work with the ancestors. Uh, ancestors of blood especially but not only and uh, I hold that within a larger animist or relational or earth honoring or some people would say shamanic uh, frame. Maybe some people have heard your voice already but just for those who don't know like how did you come to be interested in the ancestors especially? Yeah well I had some experiences and you know as a teenager that nothing that unusual really I just ate some strong psychoactive drugs and bumped into things that weren't physically visible, but I realized were real, even after the medicines wore off. And so I sought traditions that had a framework for things like spirits or gods or whatever those things are. And 
was fortunate even at a young age to connect with teachers of uh, paganism, shamanism, things like that. And so I got a, fr a framework for relating with the animal, plant spirits, and things like that. And those first teachers in pagan tradition also introduced me to the relevance of honoring my ancestors of blood. And that is something for whatever reasons I just really ran with. And I didn't see my family of origin growing up. They're nice people, but they weren't unusually tapped in. So I didn't see them as a source of great spiritual depth necessarily, but through coming to appreciate the older ancestors of lineage that I'm connected to through them, I went through a whole process of revaluing my family and myself and in a sense, my body and roots in a way that's been very healing and has catalyzed me over the last 20 years to share with others some of the fruits of that process and, and now to train others on how to guide the work that I've developed in that way. So and you have a book as well, Ancestral Medicine, which you can touch on in a second. But maybe first, just for the listeners, you can break down the word uh, ancestor for, for them, maybe. Yeah, sure. It's really important to unpackage it a bit because most people in modern Western culture, even people with some you know, First Nations or African ancestry may not have received growing up an intact framework for ancestor reverence and ritual. And so if we're not careful, we can make assumptions about what's meant. So on a, on a like functional, pragmatic level, people who are ritualists or traditionalists like myself will talk about the ancestors and use that to refer to the spirits or souls or collective energy of those who were previously incarnate on earth in human form, but are now in, you could say in spirit form or in the unseen, but are available still for relationship with the living. And so they're the humans that are not incarnate right now and they dwell in the present. You could think of humanity as a city divided by a river that's one you know, entirety or one uh, wholeness. And the ones in the visible on one side are here and the ones in the unseen are the not incarnate right now once. So a death here <laughs> is a birth, hopefully of an ancestor. And birth here is indication that one has departed from the other side of the river as it were. And so the ancestors are in the present. They can include ancestors of blood, ancestors of adoptive family, ancestors of place of the land. Like I'm not Cherokee or Salagi by blood ancestry, but they are an important part of the ecology and culture of this place here in Western North Carolina. And ancestors of spiritual lineage. I'm not Yoruba by blood ancestry, but I'm in relationship with some of those ancestors by virtue of being a practitioner of Yoruba traditions and ancestors of vocation, etc. But I tend in my work ritually to focus a lot on ancestors of blood, even for folks who are adopted or from blended families because <laughs> it's my observation that they have a lot of influence on our lives in the present for better or for worse and often that influence is unconscious and not accounted for so uh, one other thing i'll add when we use the word ancestor is it it doesn't inherently carry the nuance that not all of the dead are equally well in spirit if someone's quite troubled during life and they die the soul or spirit or animating force that is their kind of deeper, more core self than only the body, that soul isn't automatically at peace just because the person is no longer incarnate. And so then we 
mean to speak of ghosts or the not yet ancestors or the troubled dead or those who are not at peace. So the dead mirror the living. They run a full spectrum from troubled to well, just like the living. If you you have a book, Ancestral Medicine, and if you'd like to just give the brief uh, introduction to the book uh, to the listeners. Sure. The book came out last year. It's the fruit of nine years of writing, tinkering, and another decade before that of just ritual learning. And it's a guidebook on how to safely and effectively reconnect and relate with ancestors of blood, especially, but more generally an overview of relating with the ancestors. So I intended the book to be very uh, pragmatic and user-friendly and a kind of how-to book for ritualists who are inclined to engage. And so in that sense, it's a, it's a giveaway. It's a um, transmitting of the practices, many of them, that have come to me over the years or have been shared with me in some cases. And my attempt with that is to help to re-enliven or restore a non-dogmatic, culturally mindful and inclusive framework for ancestor reverence and ritual that can work well for diverse people who weren't raised with that framework, but want to come into relationship with their ancestors nonetheless. So this received some good response so far. So I'm encouraged about that. And I uh, yeah, worked hard on it. Spent almost 20 years coming up with what's in there. So glad to have it out. We can, we can talk more about West African and the Yoruba if you want. But I'm also interested, I'd heard you were maybe a lived in Morocco a little bit and maybe a practicing Muslim. And I, I spent some time in Morocco, so I'm just interested. To, okay. To yeah, I was in Fez. That. I was there maybe just for a month or so before 9-11 happened. And it was, it was jarring for me. I was young. And so eventually I decided to return home. I was for a year, year and a half, part of a Sufi order. And I'm practicing Muslim, like Sufi Muslim, and have a lot of respect for Islam. And and also ways in which my values differ from most, but not all Muslims about certain social issues. And I did, I was a Fulbright scholar also in Egypt. So I do speak some Arabic and uh, you know, have a lot of respect, generally speaking for Arab culture and uh, sadness for how much uh, anti-Arab, anti-Islamic sentiment is present, especially in the United States at this time. So. Uh, it's been an important part of my journey to learn to value those those cultures, and uh, it's true that I'm I travel now back and forth to Nigeria. I've been four times in the last maybe five years to do training and initiations there. I'm a student of your language as well as culture, and it's great. I've felt very well received, and well cared for by our teacher and lineage and Oderemo and Ibadan. And it's not what I presume to teach publicly, but being a part of an intact indigenous earth honoring system that is welcoming to non-Yoruba people, it's an honor, it's a, it's a privilege, it challenges me in fruitful ways. And I appreciate that it's honoring of the feminine and honoring of different aspects of the sacred and um, honoring of the earth. So those are very important core values to me, so. Yeah. Um... I want you to unpack this. There's a picture in your book of a, I believe it's maybe in Nigeria or West Africa of a 
people covered head to toe and they're supposed to be ancestral mediums. I'm wondering if you can break, yeah, that, that's down, right. break that down for us and tell us what's going on. <laughs> that's Egungun. Egungun uh, is uh, ancestors, the collective spirit of the ancestors. And in Yorba, Egungun is uh, the bones. So they're, uh, I'm, I'm an initiate in Egungun society. And, and so I'm, and when an individual in that initiatory society is in ritual mode, so to speak, there is a consecrated suit that has one covered from head to toe, so they're not identifiable. Or if they are, if you know who's in the suit, it's taboo to say that. And when one is in the suit, the understanding is that you are the ancestors, or the ancestors are coming through you, or that the suit is a kind of, think of it like a skeleton key or like an access, like a, oh, I guess a portal, something like that, or the wisdom of the ancestors to come through. And so when anyone who's an initiate or a medium in that society is in masquerade, they don't speak. It wouldn't be like, hey, Mark, how's it going? I'm hanging out here in the masquerade. Uh, it would be speaking as the ancestors in the first person. And the voice changes and the flow ritually is spontaneous often and the ancestors through that individual may pray for the living or do any number of things and get rowdy and jump on cars and do you know like they, during festival it can get uh, very communal and rowdy in a, in a fun way in a potent way too sometimes and it's a beautiful tradition. It's beautiful how it's communally held, and it's beautiful how living individuals are trained and recognized to be able to bring through the ancestral wisdom in community. So it's sad how few practices like that are still intact in modern Western cultures. And but it's yeah, it's Egungun yeah. society, yeah. So E G U N G U N. So I'm guessing that uh, in the past we were more connected to these things than in Euro even European cultures. I guess you write a little bit about that, right? Uh, sure. Historically, in cultures of Europe, there were traditions analogous to this in some form or another, ways that the ancestors could still speak. And there are still some traditions like that, and also reviving or uh, renewed, recreated traditions, or just freshly created traditions. So it's not as if European ancestor people have been completely devoid of ancestral honoring, but the really established communal traditions tended to get quite fragmented with the expansion of Roman Empire and then Christian Empire, you know, from 500 to 1,000 years ago, more or less, and depending on where you're at in Europe. And that's the, the cultural void or vacuum or wreckage, if you will, that my own calling is operating in is helping people to engage in repair work with their ancestors to even recognize that the ancestors are more than memory they're also living sources of relationship and wisdom and intelligence that we can engage with in the present so just that is a it's a paradigm shift for a lot of people and it's functionally a return to older ways of knowing and you talk a little bit in the book about uh, people kind of being, especially I think in North America, maybe in other places, they're they're ashamed of their European heritage, maybe or something like that. Can you well, say something? It's tricky. I mean, white people struggle with being regular sized because 
European ancestor people have implicitly or explicitly participated so egregiously in the ideology of white supremacy through the history of European colonialism uh, and the double genocides of native peoples and African peoples that have happened in the colonizing of the Americas, Africa, etc. Because of that really um, egregiously problematic history, European ancestor people tend to either be still stuck in that and thinking more or less consciously that somehow white people are better or be so wrecked with understandable guilt and shame about the history to say that white people are less than. And to say either of those things is to centralize white people and still be stuck in a white centering, non-relational paradigm. In some ways, the feeling bad about the history is it's better than just being unconscious about it. But it's not as good as becoming regular sized. So you can relate with regular sized African or Asian or native or Polynesian or whatever people who are not European ancestors. So it is one of the applications of ancestor work, an important application of it to dismantle and break down the illusion of monolithic races of white people, black people, and by extension, red people or yellow people. It's a very uh, crude and scientifically completely untenable construct of race generated, especially in the 16, you know, 1600s by European land-owning wealthy people to justify slavery. I do think that getting to know our more ancient ancestors and to seek to have those ancestors be at peace with other lineages that we embody, because so many people are beautifully multiracial, sometimes through historically consensual relationships, sometimes not. Uh, and in, in any case, it's still possible to claim those ancestral connections. And doing so sets up <laughs> a healing, uh, healing energy in our hearts and our bodies, a sense of wholeness that we can bring to our other interactions. There's a lot of cultural healing that's needed at this time. And for, you know, for European ancestor people seeking to participate in dismantling white supremacy and that, and, and just racism, whether it's interpersonal, intrapsychic, systemic, you don't arrive at that by feeling like garbage about yourself. It's just not that transformative as a stance. And so I'm the best and the worst. Both of those are still white centering. So they're not, they're not that interesting. So, but, so yeah, we need to find uh, the roots of healthy self-esteem. Sometimes that includes going uh, farther back on the lines. But I think you said you don't need to actually go back and live in these places, right? Because some people oh, no. think they need to do that maybe. Uh, totally not. That's, you could say, classist or unrealistic. If I'm like, hey, white people move back to Europe. Now, a small minority of people may have both the ability to do that financially and somehow the ability to get a visa or to make that a reality. But that's a very small number of people. And it's just not practically tenable. And I don't think that I'm really Irish, German, or English. Uh, my people have been living in the United States, North America, Turtle Island as colonizers for a couple hundred years. And so, it, you know, the, the definition of indigeneity that focuses only on blood, 
period is a narrow colonizer construct of indigeneity that's not actually indigenous, so to speak, to many of the tribal nations throughout the Americas. And so that doesn't mean that blood and ancestry has no place in the discussion, but what is it to be a responsible human being in conscious relationship with the spirits whose bodies or the land where you're at and who is working to proactively face your history and all that, those are layered nuanced questions. So it's not just about blood. And if we, if we reduce it to that, we've bought into a, essentially a colonizer mapping of identity that's too narrow. Um, so no, we're not gonna just all go back to our origin point. And it's no fun explaining that to someone who's multiracial. Be like, you're gonna send a third of you back to Africa and the other third is going to stay here and then one third is going to go back to europe so pack your bags or not with me my both my parents were born in western europe and moved to canada in the 70s and i was born in canada so what would you say to someone like that maybe? well i'd say it's good to come into direct relationship with your older wise loving ancestors so that you have a relationship with them and I believe, not having been there, that Ottawa's an Algonquin-speaking area. I'm sure there's a lot of nuance about which tribal nations, etc. And so what you could do on a ritual level, you could, with your ancestors, seek to very humbly give acknowledgement and respect and introduce yourself to the ancestors of the land where you're at, with offerings, with humility, with whatever you can discern about the traditional protocols for that. Of course, if you have living connections and community within First Nations communities there, you can reach out to them and say, hey, I want to show up in a good way. I want to actually be in conscious relationship with the land and to be a respectful human being. Are there any modest actions that I could take to move toward that? Perhaps you could make a donation to an organization that supports First Nations issues, perhaps uh, someone's willing to share with you more about basic ritual protocol. So I don't think there's just one way to do that, but you bring that question of what does respect look like to people who have already been asking it and to the First Nations communities there. And if you listen closely and lean in with that question, answers will come if you're sincere and keep with it. Okay. Can you say something about what you personally have learned from First Nations people and your exposure to them, maybe? Yeah, I know a few things that come to mind. One is how to pray from the heart. I spend a lot of time in Inipi ceremony and sweat lodges and other Lakota ceremonies and Native American church ceremonies. And so I, I saw a lot of people really praying directly and from the heart in a down-to-earth way. So I learned a lot about that from sitting in ceremony with Native people, as we say in the United States. And I've also learned about how to make family where you go. A lot of Native people, in my experience, are open if they see you to being a person of good character is continuing to show up to potentially seeing you as family. So it's kind of like people are either family or probably not going to be family or not yet family. And, and that way of holding of making new community where you go is a very adaptive and resilient way of uh, holding 
life together over generations that have included a lot of adversity. I would also say that I've seen Native or First Nations people model how activism and advocacy and policy change and all that are inseparable from ritual and sacred realities. The recent campaign at Standing Rock, for example, in, you know, in the Dakotas and North Dakota modeled that in a lot of ways. It was a very sacred, ritually held movement that was addressing something very tangible and very, you know, with political and economic implications. So the inseparability of policy, politics from the sacred is something that also feels very true to me. And I think Native First Nations people tend to model that very beautifully. Okay. One of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, we've talked a bit about the cinema on this podcast, and some people said I was a cinephile. So I was interested in all your references in the book to uh, popular media and uh, <laughs> movies like The Sixth Sense and Poltergeist and things. So I wonder if you'll talk a bit about ancestors and that general subject in the media and some of your, maybe your favorite uh, examples of that, maybe if you, you seem like sure. you're well-versed well from the books. So. Yeah, I'm trying to think what ties into ancestors really. I mean, there's pop culture stuff, but a movie that I appreciate a lot is Cloud Atlas for the reasons that it speaks to the way that time is nonlinear or that cycles or patterns repeat in different iterations, often in very uh, generationally removed ways. So um, the same basic you know, sequence of notes can appear in the 1800s and the 800s and you know tomorrow in a series of events. And so that is conveyed beautifully in that film. So that's one that comes to mind. I liked Vikings recently, but I don't know how spiritual it is. It's just it's just seeing the older Norse traditions portrayed uh, in a in a connective way was moving to me. Um, yeah, I uh, saw the movie Coco recently. I thought of that when I was I, because it. of I I've heard it's great because of our six month old daughter who's very precious. We don't get out to the movies much, oh. but it's but it's definitely. Um, on the list of ones to appreciate. It's, so. It seems very relevant because it it's all about the the Day of the Dead and the the ancestral like uh, kind of the in between realm between. For sure, you know, I've heard it's really excellent. So. Oh, it's pretty good. It's a bit formulaic in some ways, but it's the subject matter is interesting to me more than the story itself. Maybe. Great. So I was just, and I just yeah. thought of the the fountain as well when you mentioned Cloud Atlas. Have you uh, I that? I enjoy the fountain also. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's in some ways, it's, I suppose, it's cliche as well, but I also appreciate the, uh, yes, that's a favorite also. Yeah. And Kundun, Martin Scorsese's Kundun, but it's not so ancestor focused. It's just a beautiful rendering of uh, the Dharma. Yeah. So. Yeah. Are you still interested in Buddhism or? You uh, you sure. Might? I mean, the Dharma is in the, in the pub of different spiritual traditions, Buddhism feels like ordering the water. It's really healthy and pretty safe and pretty it's a it's a safe choice and i don't mean to downplay the the edgier aspects of buddhist tradition by characterizing it as the water so to speak but you can't really argue so much with the dharma it's uh i don't know that's how i, I tend to experience mahayana buddhism at least is that for me as long as there's a strong bodhisattva ethic of relationality and of non-abandonment of others, 
And as long as that characterization of who is an other includes the other than humans and not only the humans, then Buddhism's fantastic. I think Buddhism in the West tends to get a bit mm, divorced from or dissociated from uh, some of the Asian roots that include more of that earth honoring animist quality. And so, but not always. And so that's my only like, caution with Buddhism is it can um, fail to really give proper respect and acknowledgement to the other than humans, to the land, to the plants and animals, etc. can have a kind of disdain for them. And if people misunderstand the Dharma, they can become isolated or snotty or judgy or averse to the messiness of life but i don't think that's inherently buddhism i think that's just people's misunderstanding of it yeah uh, I, I was interested in this idea of multi-soul theory from your book i'm interested i'm actually interested in reincarnation and you know something after you know some what happens after death kind of thing so you write a bit about death but can you talk about this multi-soul theory? I think it was the Mongolians that were sure. saying something about that. Most any indigenous traditional culture that I've had the good fortune to be in contact with, with which isn't so many, but you know, more than one or two, uh, they all have a, a way of viewing the soul or the spirit that's plural, it's multiple. That we're not just one thing, we're a convergence of different energies or forces. And it's not something a lot of folks in the West have even considered as a interpretive frame. And to give just one example, in Buryat Mongol tradition, I studied with the teacher Sarangarel Odegan, passed in 2006. And in that tradition, we were a composite of three different souls, two of which animals also share, one of which is unique to humans. And one of those three doesn't reincarnate and settles into the natural world <clears throat> upon death. Another of the three does reincarnate and does not tend to follow the bloodlines and settles into the the earth or the dimensional space within you know underground after death and another of the three also reincarnates and tends to follow the bloodlines and resides in the upper world just like a bird or breath soul between incarnations and so yes there's reincarnation no there's not reincarnation yes it follows the bloodlines and no it doesn't for me, that's a refreshing and more comprehensive kind of worldview that recognizes there can be multiple things happening at the same time, spiritually speaking. And my teacher in uh, Oderema in uh, Ogun State, Nigeria, for example, this father passed in 2013. And I was visiting there just a few weeks after the better buried in the house. And sleeping across the hall from his father in that way. And then the next trip, maybe seven, eight months later, my teacher had a son who was born, and it was determined through divination that his son was the reincarnation of his father who had passed. And in subsequent trips, the conversations played out with my teacher that just because his father has returned as his son doesn't mean his son's going to tell him what to do. It doesn't mean that he is going to stop relating with his father and spirit as an ancestor. So both things are true. And it's as if a dipper is poured from the same river back into the living, but the river itself is not diminished. So what's important about reincarnation is that we flex a bit 
on the math that says the soul is only one thing. And we allow for multiple realities to be true at the same time. Okay, so I'll give you the chance now to talk about your upcoming, uh, is it called, is it a workshop? Is that the right title? It is, it's a, it's a three-day training so, uh, so in, Ottawa, in Ottawa, August. So, so go, yeah, ahead, August. go ahead and tell people what they can expect from that and where to find out about that. Maybe. Sure, it's August 24th to 26th and it's Ancestral Lineage Healing Intensive. So it's a three-day training from 10 to 5 each day and again in late August and the information on that is on my website, which is ancestralmedicine.org. Participants will be guided through the lineage repair work that's featured at the heart of the book and is about coming into direct relationship with some of their own much older, typically, wise and loving ancestors and partnering with those ones to bring healing to the lineage between them and those older ancestors. So it's about healing up family legacies of trauma, difficulty, disconnect, <clears throat> and discovering and embodying ancestral blessings that are part of one's own lineage, even if you have a kind of dismal view of your family of origin. Just hope that uh, one last thing about the training itself is that the way I hold this work is very explicitly uh, it's inclusive and it's intended to be in a cultural healing way. So that means there's an underlying ethic of anti-racism, of decolonization, of being LGBTQ friendly and welcoming, and uh, just being respectful of cultural difference and proactively um, mindful and humble about the different kinds of life experience that people bring to the work. I'll give you the chance to tell people what else you're working on right now or if it's anything on your mind before we wrap up the formal interview here? Sure, mostly I would say to people who are drawn to connection with their ancestors to know that it's a very doable kind of thing. On my site under the sessions part of my site, there's a directory of practitioners that I've trained and more are being added all the time in this work. And although I don't do individual sessions with people anymore unless I'm mentoring them, uh, the people who have trained to definitely offer those services. And so it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a whole spiritual thing. If folks are feel for whatever reason, a desire to have a framework to safely reconnect with their ancestors, be hopeful about that. It's very doable. And there are lots of people who can support you in that. And those sessions don't have to be in person. Most of them happen by distance. And it's about the practitioner stepping you, the client, through connection with your own people. So that's, that's where I'm focused, is training people and how to guide that work. And it's, it's very satisfying. And I uh, am yeah, busy with it. It's job security. So uh, it's good. I have a good time with it. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Mark, for the invitation. And uh, you know, perhaps we cross paths when I'm in Ottawa. Well, that does it for another episode. Just a reminder, the website for this podcast is furtherreflections.net. There you can find the episode archive. You can find more about myself. You can support the podcast. And you can see the archive of my previous podcast, Reflections On. Thanks for listening.